and leaders. Welcome again to another Thoughts and Leaders. I'm going to make this a joint program because, as you know, I do another podcast, which is to do with mental health, uh, which is Together in Isolation. So for the first time ever, let's have a fun fanfare. And there's the fanfare. For the first time ever, we're going to have a joint program. You are in for a serious treat, people. Okay. Are you ready for it, everyone? Okay. So it's Mr. Sam Kane. Sam. JJ, how are you? Yeah, I'm absolutely ticky-booing and all that sort of idea. So, first of all, for the one person who is on a remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean who doesn't know you, a little bit about your background. JJ, I think you're being a little bit kind. There's more than one, there's more than one or two. If we, if we're like six or seven notes at the end of that, we're probably getting anywhere <laughs> close. For all those people who don't know me, and there will be lots, my name is Sam Kane, and I am predominantly best known as being an actor in British soap opera. I, I suppose that my claim to fame was Brookside and the marriage of the beautiful Linda Lusardi. Yes, I'm that lucky sod. Um, I, had, I did soap operas, I've done musical theatre, Coronation Street, what else did I do? Emmerdale, The Royal... Um, lots of TV stuff back in the day, kind of stopped about 20 years ago when I got more ensconced in musical theatre, did a lot of that, some of the big old classics like Carousel, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh, the Rat Pack, which is one of my favourites, playing the leads in those things, being a singer, actor, all-round entertainer, is kind of what I've done. I disappeared for a while as well, JJ, and started sailing mm. the seven seas on cruise ships, which is the best um, kept secret in show business, may I say. And um, oh, right. yeah, okay. with my one man show, I've always been that guy who stands up and entertains. Never been amazing at everything, but jack of all trades. That I suppose that idiom could fit my uh, my uh, my CV. Um, yeah, and that's and that's what I did. And I'm kind of taking a back seat now. Um, slowly segued into while I was also performing, directing, producing, writing. Got more into that and fell in love with it. The whole gamut of show business the agency i work with or work for is a company called tad management and my best friend terry davis is the ceo originally from manchester lives now in okay. phoenix in arizona and he runs the company from over there so i head up the uk division uh okay. and i suppose the european side a lot of it is cruise ship based where we get entertainers on and off you know we're called guest entertainers i suppose that's the uh, title and we okay. book all those guys on pretty much every different cruise line but since okay. the, the decimation yeah. that it stopped full stop I want to talk to you about behind the scenes of the soaps how many bloody soaps have they recorded in advance I mean when are they going to run out of Coronation Street it's very clever what they've done. Very clever indeed. Well, they're usually around about six weeks ahead of what's being transmitted on the TV. And that's five right. episodes a week in usual cases. So six months ahead, you can imagine, do the math, however many episodes they've got. So what they had to do very quickly, was because nobody knew when the, the coming out of this would happen, uh, coronavirus yeah. that being, um, so they had to slow it down. So they went back pretty much to the status quo and started, I think they're doing three a week now. So they've had to eke it out, but they're running, they're coming to an end of it. All the backlog now is pretty much, it's depleted. So they're finding ways, which is pretty ingenious, certainly on uh, Emmerdale. And I should imagine the others are following suit. Yeah. But yeah. they're having to film in, in, in keeping into guidelines of government, of government uh, well, guidelines is the word. Um, so there's, there's no contact. There's a skeleton crew doing these things. So most of these things, it's like a, they're being shot now like a two-man play. 
So they've oh, got I like see. one cameraman, one sound guy. So there's very few people and the actors themselves are given the microphones that have been wiped down. They're applying their own microphones, applying their own makeup, picking their own wardrobe out and going out. And in a lot of cases, even finding clothes that they own that would be a similar style to the character that they're playing would wear. So there's oh, all of that. So they had, they've had to really use their imagination on this. And I suppose yeah. it's going to be enjoyed a bit more because there's so much more that's gone into it. It's just a very different thing. I mean, you see, we've all seen the episodes in whatever it may be, where it's a, a very small cast, you know, one location, wow. small crew, small amount of cast, and just shot within the storyline. So the writing has to be adjusted. When do you think it's going to start reflecting the COVID storyline? Well, it has to now. Like I said, they're going to be in a place where they're depleted of, of episodes that are in the can. So they're going to have to start doing these, keeping into government guidelines and what's happening right now. Because that's what soaps do. They kind of reflect what's happening in real life. Yeah, yeah. But the old storylines, which are which whatever they might be, this one's in love with that one, that one's hating yeah. this one, this one, whatever it is that they do in these soaps, uh, that's all going to have to go to, uh, aside for a while, I suppose. I suppose they might do some soliloquy stuff where you're going to have just one man, one woman, you know, going through lockdown or something like that. That exactly. might be yeah. and, and it's weird because the question's been asked about how are they going to uh, portray real life, certainly in the current climate, you know, with masks, social distancing, no contact. Six people can meet now. Six people can actually meet. And I'm having difficulty finding six pe- people I like. So, <laughs> I know, they don't. <laughs> Boris hadn't, didn't take that one into consideration. Now we've all got to find six people we like. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Six people we know is tough enough. No, I, I think it's got to. I think there's got to be a reflection, certainly, of this, because it's not like it hasn't affected everybody on the planet in one way, shape, or form. So it will have to be reflected in the storyline. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's not a reflection of real life. I think the difficulty they will have is when they've run out of the episodes they have in the can, carrying those storylines on. That's exactly. That would normally be, is going to be a great difficult. it's great difficulty them trying to figure out how to do that. But I think in a certain situation... And these circumstances, the audience will be totally understanding of that. Exactly. Now, you said that your new uh, venture is all about cruise ships. They really are finding themselves in deep water now. They, they are already under massive scrutiny before anything to do with COVID-19. The legislation on cruise ships and the standards that they have to adhere to are already pretty much higher than any other travel standard on the planet. So the cleanliness, their hygiene, and everything to do with how they run the ship and keep it up to standard, because they are effectively places where if something happens and it's something that someone can catch, pretty much everyone's going to get it. Um, yeah. Norovirus is a prime example. They narrow it down very quickly because you only have to touch your surface and then touch your face and you've got it. It's that quick. Right. It's the same as right. coronavirus. So it's a very similar kind of thing. It's sickness and it's diarrhea uh, and it's, it, it's super contagious. You know, the, right. the legislation that they are under is huge and they have to adhere to it. And they are put under scrutiny literally every time they come into port, standards are checked. But getting back to the coronavirus, they recognised very quickly that it was very contagious um, and it was a serious, as we know now, serious pandemic, or then as it was, not quite a pandemic. They, they shut down immediately and said, okay, we understand how this works. The best thing we can do, get into port, dock the ship, get everybody off, get everybody home, and minimise the, the fallout that could potentially happen on cruise ships.
Now, in the wonderful, amazing, spectacular business that is show, it's really, really tough on those people in that business, isn't it? Uh, different gamuts within it as well. You know, it's not just about the regular self-employed people, of which most show business people are self-employed. So they do fall in to a grant bracket. I'm one of the fortunate ones in this case because I'm still working. So um, tag management haven't had to furlough anybody. We're still running as a functional solvent company. So that's Wonderful. amazing for me. But there are lots of people who are, um, like I say, that limited company bracket who get nothing. No, it's difficult. You know, there are grants out there for people who are self-employed and certainly people who are full-time employed in the in the industry. And it's not just people in the spotlight. There's a lot of tech people out there, you know, behind the scenes who work backstage who are employed. You know, those guys are being furloughed. So in terms of um, the future of business, in, and I, I hate this term, I don't know about you, Sam, new norm. I was speaking to you just before we went, went on air about a mate of mine who, who uh, runs, well, he owns a, a theatre in London. And his issue, one of the issues that he has, is that he's still got to pay the rates and all the rest of it. But of course, he can't, you know, even. No coming he, in. He, exactly. Well, he said that he'll probably be one of the last lot to, to get people back in again because it's a theatre. I mean, you've got to have social distancing. So it's a and very, very serious problem. Well, it's a massive problem, JJ. And, and until they find a vaccine, it's going to remain. Now, the, the quandary is. And I don't know about the UK, I don't know about Europe, but I, I do know about America. They're going to open churches very soon. Now, some really? of the churches in America, certainly in the, in the place where the company I work for is, 2,000 people can, can frequent this church, and they're going to allow them in. People are going to want to go in and do what they do in a church. So right. if, they can, if they can not social distance or not think about social distancing, and I hope they are, but I hear they're not, Right? If they can do that in a church, what is the difference between that and a theatre? It just comes down to basic common sense, doesn't it? If you've got mm. a chance of getting it, you want to keep yourself as far away from that chance as possible. So right. if you sat next to someone, you can carry the symptoms of this for two weeks and not know. So the amount right. of people you come into contact within that two weeks, if you're a busy person, could be hundreds. And then the, the cycle continues. We know how it works. Do you think that we are tragically and i use the word absolutely not even advisedly i'd use it absolutely fundamentally and categorically uh tragically you think we're heading for a, a second peak as they start to dip their toe further in the water letting more um of these restrictions go the more they will find that this will grow uh, every time they we have a bank holiday over here which is kind of pointless these days um we're yeah, told no. that the figures are falling down. I mean, the last one, that we were in the tens as opposed to the hundreds, the last figure on the bank holiday. And then the next week, we were back up to 400 and something. Of um, I don't know whether they're considering all cases these days, um, as it is in care homes and hospitals. But there's people in, in homes who are down because the hospitals you know, weren't taking them in for a while. You know, were they counted in as well? Back to the theatres, though, JJ. I think what will happen is there will have to be a case of sticking to certain amounts of rules and regulations and common sense, whereas people will have to be a certain distance away from each other, certainly in an auditorium scenario. But this isn't just about the people that are watching the show. This also adheres to the people who are on the stage being watched. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Sam I want to tell you that Mr. Sam Kane is 
Mr. UK Panto. I am telling you, this man not only he's not only one of the greatest performers in terms of pantomime, but he's an amazing writer of uh, pantos and a bit of a historian when it comes to panto. Remember, I'd be writing a scene, I'd say, JJ, is this funny? And you, with the greatest sense of humour, would always come back and go, no, Sam, it's not. Which then meant I knew it was, because you exactly. are... You are the country <laughs> woman that you are, JJ. That's me. Now, no, but seriously, with things like Panto, I suppose that's going to be in the new norm. That's going to be very weird. I mean, you can't do the kid stuff. You can't do the he's behind you stuff. It's going to be lot, very strange. There's a lot of different genres of entertainment. You know, we've discussed this at great length with the cruise bookers and, and the CEOs of cruise companies about how it will be when we get back to cruising and they want entertainment. There's nothing like being there on the night, you know, and the roar of the Greek space. Absolutely. The roar, there's nothing yeah. like it. There is nothing like it. And it's, um, you know, magicians on stage. Most of our magicians, actors, can I get a, a, can I get a victim out of the audience, please? You, sir, can you come exactly. up and rock card, pick a card? All of that business is yeah. going to go because all yeah. of that needs to be adhered to. But, but theatre will be very, very different and it will affect so many different things. Any Shakespeare play, there'll be no kissing. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Romeo and Juliet is, is how can I say this? It's, um, I've got it without swearing. It's, it's a bit messed up. <laughs> well, it is. He'll be texting it, won't he? <laughs> Where are uh, Romeo? Uh, I'm, 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 what am I doing? I'm shielding your two, call. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm two metres away. That's where I am. <laughs> Ignore it. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go. Take a look in the five and ten. Glistening once again. With The other thing is, and, and you know this, I once, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I was Father Christmas in a grotto, right, wasn't I, Sam? I was just thinking about it. You know, what happens to oh, Father Christmas? Another one. Well, things were changing anyway, weren't they, with the, um, with, with the correct laws about, you know, having contact with children and things like that. So that was kind of already happening. So... You know, that will just be, you know, you'll stand at the doorway, Santa will ask you what you want, and, you know, the present will be probably posted. I mean, the presents were getting less, <laughs> and less as, as the years yeah. went by, weren't they? It was getting more or less impressive as time went I, on. Well, you, now, I know. We, we, that'll be sending uh, you a text emoji. Be it. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, here you are, kid. <laughs> Underneath that bloody beard. Wear a beard for four weeks, right? That bloody nylon beard, and you'll know what uncomfortable it is. I mean, if they have that, and they also have a mask on, God help them. So to all all my fellow Santas out there, I'm with you, mate. I really am with you because I know how difficult it bloody it's the is. Thing, JJ, is that part of Christmas going to be cancelled as well? It really yeah. is. I hadn't even considered it, but it's it's true, isn't it? It could be, could well be. Yeah, you know, get yeah. back to the cruise ships as well. What they're doing as well, they're getting away with all the buffet situation. So you know, you, there'll be no second party or third party touching the food. It will everything will have to be delivered like restaurant style. Yeah, you know, yeah, all yeah. things like getting on board, they're going to have the temperature checked. And don't forget, when you get on a cruise ship, it's all about the destinations you go to. So as you go to these destinations, are you going to pick these things up? So all of these things are coming into consideration. What yeah, cruise yeah. company is costing them, JJ? I won't mention which company. It's costing them $2.5 million a day just to Good keep God. the lights on. Good God. That's, that's, that's a lot that's of money. Serious. What's the feeling from the state side in terms of what's going on at the moment, in terms of showbiz and also the general outlook? 
Well, from the population to the people in the know is very different. You know, it just seems to be pretty much like the people who are not doing anything to do with social distancing here. They're just getting on with their lives. They don't believe it. They don't want to believe it. They're not having any of it because it hasn't happened to them. And why should you infringe on their, you know, human rights? Well, you're infringing on the human rights because those human rights could take the life of somebody else. That's the reason very, very basic and very simple and should come down to simple humanity and kindness of fellow man. Even talking about not going out and clapping on a Thursday night now, 60 seconds of your life, if it's going to cost, I mean, I kind of get it. I go, okay, you know, it's going to become a habit and what is the sentiment still there? I get it. But, you know, while we're still in lockdown, 60 seconds, what's it costing? I know. Whether it's being politicised or not, if you haven't got any kindness or any, any, your own benevolence, just, just to go out and say thank you. You don't have to go outside. You don't have to do it. Just, just spare a thought. Is, is yeah, absolutely. All. Absolutely. Now, on a, um, I'm going to use the word a second time now, on a, a, a tragic uh, thing that happened to you and, and dear Linda as well, is that you actually did catch this. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrific. It was horrific. I was in the throes of it and only just finding out what this was. I remember being on the radio the uh, Sunday before, or the Sunday when it was kind of on the news that it was happening in other places. Just come out of China, there'd been a couple of cases somewhere else. And this was before it even got to Europe. So hearing all this stuff, I couldn't even remember what it was called. Couldn't even remember. I had to um, assimilate it to the old bottles of lemonade. Do you remember Corona lemonade? Oh, I remember them. Yeah, so it was that. It was the only way I could remember it. And then a week later, bang, I'm out of the game. Literally wiped out to the point where, I've said this many times, Linda and I have been on TV and, and lots of different media talking about this. And um, and I've said it pretty much every time. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but you know you're in a bad way when you're praying that you don't wake up the next day. That's how bad it was. But what, but what is it? Is it because you can't breathe? What is it? It's everything. If you can imagine every ailment you've ever had and multiply that, and turn every bit of it into torture chamber. A headache became like there was somebody with a, a, a drill inside your brain and it was you couldn't escape it. Toothache was every tooth. Backache was down your spine, right the way down your legs. And it was debilitating. If you had any groin pains, it was like all the way through your stomach. Everything was amplified by a million. It sounds really dramatic, but that's how it was. And it was relentless. For 12 days, it was every single, 24 hours a day. When you'd finally get some respite and get to sleep, your dreams would be horrific and they would wake you up because of your, your fever. And the fever was so bad that you'd wake up and the sheets were sodden wet. And you'd stand up, you'd go down to try and cool down. You'd crawl to the bathroom, try and put some water on your face. By the time you were coming back, your teeth were chattering. It was horrific. It was horrific. I, I, I put an analogy to it and I said it felt like the devil had his knee on my chest and his hands around my throat and he was laughing and I could see his grin in my face because he was just going, this is great. And he loved every second of it because it was it was hell. It was horrific, JJ. No, And I was one of the lucky ones. I managed to get through it. So if I'm going through that, and I've got people who've had tracheotomies, some friends of mine, you know, put into induced comas who were fortunate enough to come out of it. So I got away with it. You know, I got away on the light side of it, but even I wanted to die. I actually remember thinking, I'm I'm hoping I get a pain down one of my arms like people describe when they get a heart attack. And I didn't want to wake up. I thought, just take me, you know? And then, and I got over the worst of it by the time we'd gone into hospital. Uh, But our oxygen was so depleted that the second ambulance that came out, because the first ambulance wouldn't take us. And the second ambulance had to- Hold on, hold on. Why wouldn't it take you? 
because I believe that the NHS were told not to take people into hospital. That's what I believe. Really? That's what I believe, yeah. What, because they, because of what? Because they couldn't cope or what? No, no, this was very early. It was very early in the whole scheme of it, certainly within UK people being taken to hospital. People had died from it, but I believe they didn't want to take it in because this is only my suspicion. I don't think they were ready. Um, They weren't aware of what was going on. And the reason I know that is because of the way uh, we were being treated when we went in. And it was brilliant, don't get me wrong, they were amazing. But they didn't know what they were dealing with and they were terrified. So the guess was they were trying to prepare to see if there was any more information, but that's only my assumption. So the first guys didn't take us. They said they they knew we were ill. They probably knew we had it. They were certain that we didn't have it because that's what they told us, but they were vague about what we did. Although no tests were given. No of tests. course, and at those, of course, in those days, there were no any tests at all. Well, there were tests. People were having. Oh, they were. A lot of false negatives were coming back, um, right. and we, we found that out very quickly because Linda's first te- test came back as a negative. The second one back, came back as positive. My first one came back while we were in the hospital. Both of us were tested, never at home. Um, my first one came back as positive, but the second ambulance came too, and the first guys just went. And I said to those guys, "If you if you leave, we're going to die. We know it's going to kill us." Because you know, you know yourself. He could, one of the guys put it down to gastroenteritis. I'm 51 years of age. Trust me, I've had gastroenteritis lots of times. I know how it feels. And coronavirus feels as far away from that as you can possibly get. Um, having never been any through, through anything like this before, I was, I was certain and I had it. The second ambulance came back and it was our son who called them. I spoke to them. Um, they came very, very quickly. And again, they were reticent to take us. And I just said, look, if you leave, our death is going to be on your hands. My wife is literally at death's door. And if you don't take her, she's going to die. Don't bother, worry about me. I think the virus is gone with me. And they said, well, let me check you. And they checked my oxygen. And I had next to zero oxygen in my blood. So they said, well, we've got to take you in now. Your wife's the same. And then they got us in the ambulance. And as soon as we got in the ambulance, they radioed in and they said, we've got two COVID-19 patients coming in. And that's without tests. So from the house, we're not coronavirus. To the ambulance, we were coronavirus. But listen, I don't blame them. They had a job to do. They were given an instruction. They had to follow through. The the treatment we got by them in their ambulance was incredible. They looked after us at home. Uh, By the time we got to the hospital, the treatment we got in the hospital was, again, these people didn't know what they were dealing with. They were terrified. It was incredible. The treatment was incredible. Um, They put us immediately on oxygen uh, to help us out. Linda went to a ward on her own. I went to a ward on my own in different locations in the hospital. psychological effect of that was was horrendous because we were both seriously ill. I didn't know how Linda was, so we were literally now FaceTiming or texting. And Linda couldn't do much of that because she was so, so ill. Thought she was going to die, JJ. It was it was the worst time of my life. It was horrific. I know, I know. And I remember uh, myself and other people that you and I know, we were texting you to see you okay. And I remember at the time you just, I got a text, I probably still got it, you said, I just can't talk. Yeah, I was, I was. I was so bad. It was so ill, and the, and the reason I didn't want anybody to know. Um, but Linda does a thing on social media, just sending bespoke videos, and somebody had had requested one and paid for one. And Linda was ill, so she couldn't physically do it. So Linda wrote in a tweet back, "I'll get this done as soon as I can." And she was literally on her deathbed. As soon as I can, this is testament to my wife. I'll get this done as soon as I can. I think I have coronavirus. So as soon as she put that out, that was it. The papers got hold of it, and it was a different game then. So that's when I had to start you know, putting Facebook messages out as to how we were. Um, because, you know, Linda being a, a major figure in the world of entertainment and, and media, you know, everybody knows who she is and she's loved by the papers because that's the, the route she took in her early days. And 
they were on us straight away. Every newspaper contacted Linda. She wasn't answering the phone, so I took over from that point because I was on the road to recovery, albeit still desperately, desperately ill. Mm. Um, but I was well enough to text and send messages out and you know converse with people, albeit very, very sporadically and, and a very short conversation. Because as you can hear now, just talking, I'm getting out of breath. My voice is kind of wispy and, and I'm, I'm aware of it. Yeah. My lungs are still pretty depleted from the uh, from the pneumonia. But it's just great to be alive. You know, it's my mojo's back now. I feel like I'm kind of normal. I still can't do anything of any great, you know, exercise or any great, um, anything that causes any fatigue. It just exhausts me in a second. Mm. But I'm um, kind of enjoying that a bit because I get to sit down for once. <laughs> I'm usually being ordered to move things, you know, because I'm a big guy. Now, well, and what do you think in a year, no, in five years' time when you look back on this, what do you think that the, 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 the main thing you're going to, get out of this in terms of the lesson if you wish from all of this in terms of going through this disgusting disease hey, well you know me jj i've always been very pragmatic i'm quite a spiritual being um i always care about the people in my life so taking people for granted i suppose we're all guilty of it to an extent i do that less and less and less with the people who mean the world to me you know there was lots and lots of people that reached out throughout the pandemic and certainly our illness people we don't know and lots of people we do and you know get touching base with those people again has been amazing and that the, the font of human kindness that's been poured all over us has just been overwhelming to the point where you know it, it, it's a little bit bewildering you know when you it's, it's like that you never know how many people are going to turn up to your funeral and this isn't that but you know it's a yeah. good indication if you go oh i'm okay it'll be a busy one you know and, yeah. and again that's another thing funerals now you just think it's horrific Linda's doing an amazing thing. I'll try and find out if we can get a link sent on this, JJ, that Linda's doing a yeah. thing. It's like a, it's like a memory wall of people who have died and couldn't really have a proper, proper send-off for anybody who died of coronavirus. This has made us just stop and think, just stop yeah. and take stock of what is actually important. My priorities have, have massively changed, whereas the people who I was aware were taking advantage of me now, I have zero time for my mm. get rid of list is enormous my take more attention list is is bigger now i tell you something well i, I know you and uh before the coronavirus uh i can you are I, i'm actually really happy um you're one of the kindest people i know so uh but i don't want to get too into that now well no, let's get absolutely into that jj before, as we uh, sorry, I'm going to do this. Whew. Right. So, as we uh, as, as we come towards the end of this show here, you were saying that when you were testing out your panto scripts with me, yeah, yeah. you would uh, say, JJ, what do you think about this joke? Well, panto jokes. Panto jokes are great. You can't go wrong with panto jokes. It's usually the dame talking to the idiot son. He's usually an idle Jack or a silly Billy or one of those characters. And it's like, he'll come in and he'll say something ridiculous. And she'll say, how do you manage to say so many stupid things in one day? And he'll say, it's because I get up early. You know, they say things like that. Like, <laughs> or, or mum, have you got anything for wind? And she passes him a kite. You know, things like that. It's things like that. It's just that juvenile sense of humour really makes me laugh. And that's what it. we need. And that's what we all need to get back to. Just simple, plain, good, honest basic but from the heart human when it comes to variety and the entertainment standards on cruise ships and that again has been lambasted over the years by none other than mr simon cowell who by the way for those people who don't win puts all those acts through his agency on cruise ships there you go a little bit of hypocrisy but that's the world we live in 
I said it at the very beginning of the interview, show, uh, cruise ships are the best kept secret in the business. When yeah. I first did my, my very first cruise ship as a guest entertainer, I walked on board an amazing vessel called the Celebrity Eclipse. Um, two and a half to 3,000 passengers, 2,000 crew. And I, the first thing I ever did when I went to a gig was go and look to see what room I was working. Sometimes it'd be, a, back, even back to the working men's club days, you'd check out the room because you'd want to immediately get a feel for what kind of performance you're going to give because it's a gauge thing, you know, as an entertainer. And I walked into the back of the arena, back of the auditorium, to a two-tier, two 1,200-seat theatre. It wasn't a room, wasn't a lounge. It was a two-tier theatre. What you would wow. expect to go and see when you go to the West End. And the wow. mechanics and the lighting, um, the lighting rig and the sound equipment and just the specification of this room was just mind-blowing. And then I work with a band and they're all world-class musicians. And I'm, I'm thinking, my God, how have I never done this? So it got immediately back into me and my bug for actually wanting to stand up there and do my one-man show and I, I sing, I tell jokes, I'm funny. I, you know, I, I'm an engaging kind of guy up there. That's, it's, it's about just getting your audience and doing what you do for 45 minutes. And, and as, as, as one of the most entertaining guys, you, anyone, you should really check this guy out. Seriously, check him out. He, in the Rat Pack, you were Dean Martin, weren't you, in the Rat Pack? One of my favourite jobs. Very rarely you get to play someone that's lived or someone that was, you know. They're usually fictional characters. So it's but you were to... Dean Martin. I mean, I saw you in it, and you were Dean Martin. There's, there's no two ways about it. You were Dean Martin. It's unbelievable. Cheers, mate. You know, that's my job. That's what we do. You know, you, you, you put on their skin and you try and emulate. You know, you work with great directors and you work with amazing people. And, you know, when you've got actual footage of the man to use as a reference, it's yeah. really good. I've always been a, a decent mimic anyway. So Very. He's Tom Jones, by the way, is something else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was talking about this just the other day. Somebody said, what was the toughest thing you ever had to do? And I said, it's probably take the direction to play Dean Martin. Um, so yeah, I suppose, you know, it's, it's about portraying the belief and suspending the belief of the people who are watching and, and completely ensconcing yourself, you know, completely just dripping yourself inside the veins of the people you're playing. Cause the, one of the directions I got to play Dean Martin was every time I walked on stage, the director would say, stop. They never let me get to the microphone. This is my first entrance into the play in rehearsal. So we do it in chronological order and I'd walk out in the rehearsal room and the director would say, no. Go back. I've taken two steps on the stage, or effectively the floor. I've got, well, I haven't got to the microphone. Go back, do it again. Okay, what do you want? Do less. Okay. So I walk, no, stop, go back, do less. So now I get further to the mic. No, stop, go back, do less. How can I do less? I'm walking from A to B. How could there be less, right? So eventually I get to the mic and then I start singing. No, do less. And it drove me insane. Because I'm thinking, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I'm videoing myself, I'm thinking, I'm not doing anything. I'm doing as little as possible within the kind of mimicry, I suppose, or essence of Dean Martin that I can, I'm taking on at this point. Anyway, we skip to opening night. Yeah. And my wife comes to the opening night. And by the way, be, before we get to the opening night, the director had gone, yeah, okay, now you've got it. And it was almost like a penny that dropped. Went, okay, I get it now, do less. And as an actor, you have to find that. And that's where a great director comes to his fore because the actor is expected to have 98% more or less under this in, in the book. The rest of the 2% is the director's job to fix what the actor doesn't have. That's what I use anyway when I direct. So open that, I walk out, finish the show, come back. Linda's in the dressing room. And I said, what was it like? And she was in tears. 
And I said, what are you crying for? She said, it was the best thing I've ever seen you do. And I went, oh my God, wow. She said, she, you didn't come on stage. Dean Martin came on stage. Amazing. And I went, oh my God, it's the biggest compliment I've ever had. Biggest Amazing. compliment. And from that, you know, from when you get things like that, people who care, and the people who care are usually the most brutal. And trust me, Linda is, she, you get the truth. You know, right. war, you get right. the truth. And for her to say that was great. And some of the musos in the in the, uh, the group as well, in the band, there was a big band, as you know, on stage. I know, I know, you know I remember. Guys worked with Dean, Frank and Sammy, and they said, Sam, you know, Jesus, it's pretty much as close as it gets. And I was just over the moon. I've got a lovely story, JJ, if you don't mind me wallowing in this little thing. It's okay, go on. About me, so, but, but it's one of those moments in your life when you just go, this is gorgeous. We were in Stoke doing Carousel, and um, it was a matinee, and it was pouring down with rain outside, and the company manager knocked on my door at the half-hour call, or just thereabouts, just before, and she said, there's two people at the stage door want to come and say hello. They said they were in, or he said, he was in the original cast of Carousel. I went, what? This is back in 2001, two. And I went, what, the original cast of Carousel? This guy's got to be like... It's got to be a proper coffin dodger, at least, you know. It's got to be seriously old. <laughs> so, so I said, yeah, absolutely bring him in. So I expect it's going to be like a chorus girl from the original show and, you know, maybe one of the guys that was in one of the chorus. No, this guy walks in, he looks a million dollars. Stephen Douglas, his name was, and his wife, Christine. They lived in, um, in, in Stafford, Staffordshire. He was originally from Canada. She was from America. They got married. I think she was from America. They got married and they spent the rest of their life in, in Staffordshire. And um, they always come to see Carousel. So this guy walks in. He looks a million dollars. Blazer, light blue shirt, yellow tie, chinos, hair slicked back. Looks sensational, right? And his wife looked like one of the golden girls, just pristine, the pair of them. And he stuck out his hand. And they're talking to me about, you know, the show. They always come to see it. He's got a deep, dark brown voice, American accent. And he's as sexy as it gets, this old guy, Right. And I said to him, they're just about to leave because we just had the half-hour call, so I've got to get ready for the show. So I said, Stephen, I'm sorry, mate. Please excuse my ignorance. But I was told before you came in that you were in the original cast of Carousel. What did you play? He said, I played the lead. I played Billy Bigelow, same part as you. I went, what? You, you were the original Billy Bigelow? And it blew my mind. He said, yeah, I was the original guy. I said, hang on a second. You, so you were cast by Richard, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. And he said, yeah, yeah, well, I was, yeah. I went, oh, my God. So I said, okay, listen, is there any chance you could come back and tell me what you thought? Because I'm not going to ever get any closer to the people who put the music and the words on the page than you. This is it. It's as close to Nirvana for this part that I'm ever going to get. And he said, yeah. I'll be honest with you, Sam. And he was pretty brutal, br pretty brutal. He said, I've seen this show a million times. He said, because I believe I owe it a debt of gratitude because it gave me everything. I was the first guy to play it. And there's a club. He said, and no one will ever else, no one else will ever get in the club. He said, because I was the first guy to play it. He said, Edmund Hockeridge took over from me. He said, and he played it. He said, and then Gordon McRae played it in the movie. He said, so that's the Billy Bigelow Club. Nobody else has ever been in it. Nobody else has ever got close. Although there have been a few that have been there, but nobody's ever got close. So I went, I went, okay, no pressure then, right? So I go out and I do my matinee performance. And it was almost like the perfect show for me. Everything went as good as it could have possibly done. Uh, every emotion was there. Every note was hit. Every position was hit. It was just like almost like the, the gods of show business and musical theatre sprinkled their dust over the show that day. But I'd said to this guy, would you come back and say, he said, I won't come back. He said, because it's usually crap. His words were, right? So I said, okay, all right, fair enough. So it was weird because at the beginning of the show, I'm stood 
backstage, ready to walk on the treads and the platform at the back of the stage when the overture starts. And it hit me about the brevity of this, the gravity of this guy and who he'd worked with. Anyway, as I said, the show went brilliantly. I'm backstage. I go back to my dressing room at the end of the show. Um, and I'm in floods of tears. It's a very emotive show. And I can't get the tears out. So I'm sobbing in my dressing room. <laughs> you know, that kind of, <laughs> you know, JJ, you're always crying, right? So <laughs> that kind of feeling. It's that kind of feeling. Anyway, there's a... It's a knock on the door. And I, so I opened the door, right? Thinking it's going to be the company manager talking about some notes or whatever. Stephen Douglas and his wife are stood there. And he put his hand out. JJ, I swear to God, this is exactly how it happened. He put his hand out, he shook my hand, and he said, Sam, welcome to the club. And I think there's a, a great lesson uh, that we can all take from that. And that is to persevere, to get it right, to know what you're doing, yeah, and to go over it again and again and never, ever, ever give up, even when you are going to be judged against the greatest and all that sort of idea, but to have oh. confidence in yourself. I think, I think that's a great lesson that we can all take, uh, Sam, in terms of moving forward with this awful disease and onto the next stage of our world, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the world and the way it is now uh, in this simulation of show business, it's brutal, you know, and you have to step up to the plate for want of a better a better phrase to um, yeah. make sure, you know, you tick all the boxes. Do you know what? If we could just, I know this is going to sound extreme and, you know, and religious people are going to kill me for it, but I believe they should all just get rid of it all and there should be two words that adhere to everybody on the planet. Just be nice. Be if nice. We could all just be kind. Be nice the world would be a much, much better place. It's that simple. But, you know, hopefully this pandemic will make people look a little bit closer to themselves, a little bit more introspective and, you know, take stock and just go out and just take a little bit more time, be a little bit more patient. Go back to the way it was, you know, where people Fantastic. just actually stopped and said hello to each other. That would be a nice well, this, well, Mr. Kane, this has been not just nice, this has been, as always with you, beautiful, kind, exceptional. Now, I know that a lot of people out there will be thinking, well, you know what? This is going to be over, please, God. And we are already uh, getting towards the next phase in terms of lifting up uh, lockdowns around the world, including in America. And so people who will be uh, who might be running cruise ships and stuff like that, they're thinking, I need to get hold of talent that we can put on our cruise ships and we want to get the best of the best of the best. How do they get hold of you? Tag management. Look on the TAD management site. There's lots of ways to find us. We're on social media. We're on the internet. Um, TADmanagement.com. Just have a look on there. You'll see it. Entertainment based from Phoenix. We're in Fort Lauderdale. We're in Miami and we're in London. We're all over the world. Let's take a, a, a leaf from Sam in terms of you only need two words and that is just to be nice. And that includes, by the way, everyone, being nice to yourself because if you can't be nice to yourself you ain't going to be able to be nice to anybody else out there so until next time be nice to yourself be nice to others count your blessings and uh, we'll see you all next time god bless see you soon if you would like to contribute to a future program please email reinvent at me.com that's reinvent at me.com.